Sonic Statesman.com. Right, okay. Well, hello and welcome to Sonic Talk podcast number 16 uh it'll be thursday the 5th of october 2006 and uh today's guests are uh, andy jones uh from feedback pr hello and we've also got uh, mark tinley just like to point out that uh, sound quality is a little bit ropey on the line from mark uh tinley today um we had some network issues and then halfway through it kind of dropped out and we had to go over to his phone line so i hope you bear with us and uh, we promise to make sure Sound quality improves next time. He describes himself as a sound artist stroke musician and uh, basically is a, a programmer of some note, an engineer, songwriter. Would, would that be fair to describe you as? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> well, uh, Mark um, uh, has worked with... Uh, you, you've been working with Duran Duran for a long time as well, I believe. I have. I first started working with Nick and Warren in 1993 and uh, I've worked with them pretty constantly ever, ever since. And um, I was working with Nick yesterday, was it? No, the day before yesterday. And and also the Dandy Warhols. Uh, Nick Rhodes produced them. So obviously, as Nick's sort of right-hand man or strange noise maker, I was there by his side helping him. <laughs> obviously, we got AES coming up. So um, there's been a bumper crop of uh, press releases so probably held back, actually. So we'll probably get a load more to talk about next week. I hope. Uh, yes, we put Andy on the plane this morning and he's going to be uh, sending us back um, all this raw footage from, from the show. So we'll we'll hopefully have a, a lot of stuff up on Sonic State over the weekend that you can have a look at. But um, one of the first things that came up was uh, Antares uh, released Auto-Tune 5, the first and most used pitch correction plugin. Uh, I mean, we've all heard its, uh, its effects everywhere. I mean, sometimes it's even become a sort of a sound in its own right, you know, the share and blue and all of those people who just use it to get that kind of robotic effect. Mark, I was going to throw this to you because you must have been in a situation where A, you've needed it, or B, you haven't needed it. I've been in lots of situations where I've needed it, particularly with Courtney from the Dandy Walls. I hate the damn thing. I absolutely hate it. Um, I liked that effect. I think probably me and... uh, Nick Rhodes were using something really similar called a Digitech Studio Vocalist before we we came across Auto-Tune. And I liked the effect because it did some really weird stuff. Yeah, I, I think it's like, it's part of the downfall of studios and musicians and programmers and how everybody fits into what, because instead of doing enough decent takes of things these days, people go, oh, don't worry, we can fix that in a computer. Don't worry, we'll fix it with auto-tune. So you get somebody who may be the greatest vocalist come in to do a vocal, and they never get to do the great vocal because people always fob them off with the fact that it can be mended uh, first, as in, you know, don't bother doing another one, go away, we've got a take that we can make work. I want things to sound deliberately vibey, or I want things to sound vibey. I don't think things need to be technically correct to be good. And if the hairs on the back of your neck aren't standing up, then something's wrong. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought of it from that from that aspect. I mean, I suppose, I mean, whenever I've come across using it, it's generally been to say maybe fix something that we didn't notice at the time. Like uh, if a synth's out of tune, but it's got a particularly great articulation of the filter or the whatever, and you just kind of go, oh, I'd really like to use that. And you can sort of tune it in. I mean, it's, it tends to get used for that. I mean, vocals... I guess a lot of people have it in their arsenal. I think everybody 
has it in their arsenal nowadays, and I think, and but I do think it's overused. I mean, Niall Rogers came to produce Duran Duran a couple of years back. Niall tended to record, you know, one take of Simon and then sit there fixing everything in auto tune, and uh, same with beat detective and drums. Everything had to be spot on the grid. Every note had to be exactly in tune on the vocal, and it just irons out any sense of performance at all. It's gone. You can say it makes you wonder if it would have been, been quicker doing a few more takes rather than messing around in auto-tune and beat detective. Well, exactly. I mean, do you think perhaps we're, in the same way that the ear has become accustomed to, you know, like the FM radio sound, our ears are becoming trained to, to record, or, or rather to not subliminally think a record sounds better if everything is bang on the beat or smack in time or whatever. I mean, and presumably that's kind of partly dance music must have have uh, have some responsibility for that because you know everything's sequenced or a lot of it's sequenced yeah i mean but i think pro tools has got more of the responsibility for it because despite everything being sequenced in the late 80s if you were using a program like cubase or um was it notator yeah um the midi timing of all of those instruments was appalling and the fact that the uh computer clocks inside s1000s or roland s770s or whatever sampler people were using couldn't keep up with the amount of data that was being thrown at it then the timing of the notes coming out still had a certain amount of of randomness even then and i think now what's happened is with pro tools being able to lock everything exactly on the grid that that things have got tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter so people want things to be perfect don't they producers want things to be perfect certainly and uh, musicians are always a little unsure and tend to go along with whatever they're told by the person that's producing them. I remember back in the days, you know, when I was using the Atari, you always used to put the drums at the top of the arrangement on Channel 1 because there was some sort of rumour that they were they, they got at the MIDI port first if you put them up there, so they'd be, they'd be, more, in, you know, they'd be more in time if, you, if they were at the top of the page. I wonder if that was ever true. No, I think that was true, and I think that was the same for the channels in the... In the order of the MIDI channels in the sampler as well. There was that thing, wasn't there, called the Russian Dragon, which was an uh, essentially a sort of uh, time source comparison thing. It was a bit like a stage tuner that just told you you put what you put a click in one side and then something else on the other side, and it told you whether it was late or early. Probably something that um, producers who now spend all their time putting things dead in time on Pro Tools would have owned. I, I think we should probably bear in mind that while whilst Auto overuse of auto tune is sort of perhaps symptomatic of a of a wider issue. I mean that the tool itself is you know can be very valuable as long as it's not overused. I, I suppose I should at this point maybe run through some of the new features which people may or may not get excited about. Uh, and the first being a humanized function, so uh, you can presumably um, randomize it a little bit better, so it's not quite as perfect as as one would want. Real-time natural vibrato uh, adjustment, larger edit display. You can sync the host transport um, to to, to auto-tune so that everything is in time and you don't have to play it from the beginning. Uh, selectable clock source, uh, real-time pitch tracking display, a, a number of other things. But uh, we'll probably be going to be trying getting something of that at, at AES and uh, we can check it out then. The Behringer iAx 393. There was a ring at the bell the other day, and um, it was uh, it was the courier, and he, for some reason they sent one to to us, which uh, is obviously great. 
Um, but I was kind of quite interested when I opened it up to, to see what it was like. Anyone, uh, Mark, have you had a look at the Behringer guitars at all? I suppose it's not something that might come your way. No, I haven't, but it sounds quite interesting. It's, it's a not. Guitar, is it? It's a guitar with a USB interface. I mean, as far as I can tell, um, it's a guitar which has got essentially their USB, you know, their standard USB interface sort of built into the form factor. It's what they give away with all their stuff at the moment. And uh, you just plug the USB thing into... I plugged it straight into a Mac, fired up GarageBand, put a live instrument track in there and kind of put a few um, guitar effects, and I was off. And it was it was actually quite good fun. I mean, the guitar needs a little bit of setting up, I would say. It's sort of, you know, because it's just shipped in a cardboard box and intonation perhaps needs a tweak and the neck needs an adjust. But it's not half bad. It's 93 quid. And... It comes with a strap, a USB cable, a plectrum, because I haven't got many plectrums in the office, and I just happened to find one in the box, and to, a copy of um, Native Instruments Combos. Guitar How combos. do they do it? How do they do it, Nick? Well, I was wondering that. I mean, you get all three of them on a CD, and you can choose which one you like, and you can get off that for nothing. And I don't know what they normally cost, but that's about 60 quid, isn't it? I think what we're going to do with this Ajax is uh, I've got a mate who's in a gigging band, and he's also a recording musician and uses a computer, so I'm just going to hand it to him and see what he thinks of it um, and try and get him to use it live as well and see whether it kind of stands up to any sort of... Um... Do they do much other guitar stuff, Berenger? Is this... The... I think this and is they the do, first one. they do amps and things like this, but this is this the first actual guitar. The first actual guitar. I mean, when we went to Mesa, um, we were sat in the press conference and they uh, all around the walls were just loads and loads of guitars. I think what they've basically done is either they've just bought or they've just done a deal with somebody who's got a guitar factory out in China. So they can essentially make guitars to order. So if you said, I want one shaped like um, a bat wing, for instance, or a Sonic State <laughs> logo, perhaps, they could probably tool up and sort it out for, you know, maybe 94 quid. I don't know. Yeah, I'm scared of Chinese technology. I've got a whole load of Chinese motorcycles in my garage, and you can pretty much break the metal in half with your bare hands so i'm sure behringer won't allow that anybody to come back at that sort of quality but do you think this is something that i could replace my casio midi guitar with does it have midi or is it just no it's just um, usb it's not a midi at all to be honest though mark you could probably bang them a fiver and they'll stick a midi interface on there for you <laughs> <laughs> i mean has the midi interface for sort of pitch to midi been bettered i know roland do a whole load of stuff i mean which is the main problem with the MIDI interface is that it needs to see one whole cycle of an audio signal to work out what note you're playing. On the deepest strings, on the deepest E string, the sine wave coming off that is actually pretty long. And yeah. if you measure in milliseconds the length of the waveform, that's how quickly you can make the guitar respond. Roland designed their interface to measure half a waveform, so it could pre-guess what the waveform was going to be. So they halved the time that it takes for a, for a trigger to occur but um and then i think that there's various different guitars which have stuff built into the fretboard that sends where your fingers are to try and speed that up as well but i mean fundamentally you can't ever make any pitch to midi thing work any faster than the length of the of the deepest waveforms so you just have to get used to it and you have to be a slow guitarist I handed my MIDI guitar to Warren Cucarulo and he couldn't get his head around it. He was like, I can't play this damn thing. And he was, you know, just annoyed with it. I tried to get him to see it for what it was and it's like, it's just another tool. Creamware Clang Boxes. Now, there's a new one. Um, I don't know if anyone's familiar, but um, the ASB range, which are kind of, they look really great, actually. They, they take 
kind of creamware technology and they put mini version of the synthesizer so if you, if you had like an asb mini max which was uh, a model on a mini moog you had a mini moog type front panel kind of similar to the korg legacy collection where you had the ms20 and so uh, what made them so great was the fact that they had the, the dedicated controls on the front um and then these new clang boxes look like they're just the uh, the brains there's nothing it's just a front panel with a light on it and um, everything else happens inside the box and presumably you control it with some sort of plug-in or software I mean, I remember when, when I launched Computer Music uh, in 97 or 98 or whenever it was, and we, were, we said at the time that computers the most powerful musical instrument in the world. We were sort of trying to predict the future. And the reason we said that was, I, was basically because I had a Pulsar system in my PC, uh, the original Creamware Pulsar system, which was absolutely fantastic. It was um, basically every kind of virtual instrument and virtual effect laid out in a, in a virtual studio on your desktop. It was probably the first proper system that enabled you to do that. Now, as far as I can tell, since then, they've just been releasing different versions, hundreds of different versions of Pulsar in scope form, and then they've, they, they came out. Do you remember the, <coughs> the hardware rack unit they did called NOAA, which was basically yes. uh, the, same, the same processors behind Pulsar, I think they're called Sharks, in, in a hardware box. So it was kind of, <laughs> they were going from software to hardware in reverse of what everybody else was doing. The ASB boxes that you mentioned, I believe, used exactly the same shark processors to produce uh, uh, the, the, the same synths that were in the original Pulsar card. So the tech, you, you say this is something new, but I don't actually think it is. I've got a feeling that they just re, it's just their shark infested kind of technology. <laughs> Uh, it's written nearly 10 years of this now and, and they just keep releasing different boxes with different variations around scope and I, you know, if, if you can pick up a, a Pulsar card which you probably can fairly cheaply now you can get all of those sounds all of the effects probably for half the price that, that any of this hardware will, will, will but isn't, like, doesn't that just show kind of ingenuity because I mean I think the ASB boxes I mean I think they're great I mean I'd love to own one or two or all of them because they're just but they're essentially MIDI controllers aren't they with with a bit of power on well they're board. MIDI I mean, controllers with the DSP to run the synth and by all accounts they do sound very good and the dedicated the, control makes them very attractive because then they just do what they do I think that the processing power should start to come out of the computer I think that computers have become too much of a pain in the arse for their own good and I had a Pulsar card as well, and you're right, you could buy a Pulsar card off eBay for 40 or 50 quid and get all of that power if you wanted it in your computer. But I think to take things out of the computer and put them back in boxes is definitely the way of the future, because if you sit there for eight hours in your studio trying to authorise all your plugins instead of doing any work, then what's the point of being in the music industry at all? You might as well be in IT. And then the other thing you said was that you thought that um, Creamware have been repackaging the same thing over and over and over again. But I think the entire music industry is guilty of that. I think you've got a valid point there, Mark. I think perhaps a little bit harsh, but I think when you consider the amount of money in R&D that goes into developing these technologies, I think companies have no choice other than to, um, you know, to work hard to, to, to actually keep getting their investment back. I mean, I think a lot of these things were probably originally invested off the back of things like the DX7 and the sort of when when synthesizers, everybody had to have one to make music. And it's not so much now. And the, and I don't think their graphs that they all projected perhaps to the boss to get the money to fund the projects um, ever came totally true. So that's perhaps why we're getting all of these kind of what, are, what we consider to be rehashing of the same technologies. 
I mean, what I want to know is when is anybody going to actually do anything new? Because we haven't had anything new for a very long time. What would you consider to be new, though? I mean, it's almost like sort of saying, I need something different, but I don't know what it is yet because it hasn't been invented. I mean, it's quite hard to, to demand I think, it. Uh, really interesting keyboard a while ago that did all the physical modeling thing where you could take um, uh, you, you need to make some kind of more interesting interface i'll be able to put piano body on a violin and see what happens when i do that but i wanted to do it properly sonic state we were just talking about the um the implications of maybe um, reusing technology uh, at which point mark's internet connection went a bit bonkers and uh, we've had to ring him up again on his phone so that's hence the difference in voice quality and I'd just like to explain. There was a Technics synth, the, the Technics WSA1 I think it was that yeah, used yeah. physical modelling um, and that was, you were right actually it was quite revolutionary and Technics put a lot of money into it and I remember they, they spent a lot of money in the magazines at the time and um, you know, advertising it and it was a great synth but uh, nobody bought it. So if they're yeah. going to model things, why model some knackered old synthesizer like a Jupiter 8 or a Prophet 5 or something like that and surely we should be moving on not moving backwards why not model physical real world things like cars and trees and circuit bending as well why is nobody making any that are based on circuit bending principles. I think they will. I mean, I think circuit bending is coming kind of quite a lot to the fore. We've got a lot of that in our Technomania series, um, if anyone's interested. Perhaps um, synth makers could take a leaf out of the uh, convolution reverb kind of model, whereby, you know, you can create your own convolution samples and use those in plugins. Maybe there's something to be said for modifying that technology so that it can be used for um, physical modelling. I have used Sonic Foundry's acoustic modelling um, plug-in for synthesis things, for looping things, for creating um, synths out of other things. So yeah, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely spot on there. Like if they could take that that way of uh, recording and measuring a, a space and turning it into something that you can apply to another sound and put it into a synthesizer so that I could stick a microphone inside my oven and tap something and then um, Use it as an uh, oscillator, that, as a, as, not as a sample, but as a basis for sounds to be made from. Then I think that might be quite interesting. I think the problem is, and I do agree with you up to a point. I think, but the, the problem is, whenever anybody does try and do something fairly off the wall, um, only they, ten people have to buy put it. A, mm. Only ten people buy it. The neuron was a case in point. I mean, more than ten people bought that, but it cost a hell of a lot. And an Axel uh, Hartman invested a lot of his own money into it and I'm sort of with you because I'd quite like to see some more off the wall stuff but it comes down to the point that, that will do, do many people want that and I think it's it's probably not as many as needs be for, for someone as big as some of these Japanese companies to stick the R&D in it's going to take a small German company like New, uh, Hartmann to do it and then it's a bit of a risk isn't it it's an interesting one but yeah i mean the quest for something new is always on the go i mean uh, and speaking of which if i could just jump topics because something new is uh, hopefully going to be happening this weekend because we've got aes in san francisco coming maybe somebody will release something amazing at aes that is you know what i'm on about precisely what i'm looking okay if anyone's listening okay. perhaps you could get that together before the aes show at the weekend <laughs> and then we can preview it for you Anybody heard anything that might be coming up? We hear Korga releasing something, but I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's going to be new, whether it's maybe an American release. Who knows? Well, all the, all the companies I deal with um, are sort of fairly quiet. I mean, Cakewalk are doing 
uh, uh, concentrating on Sonar 6. I don't know if you've heard much about that. That sounds pretty cool. Well, yeah, we, we, we talked about that last week. That's going to be a big oh, did you? We're going to try and get a, a fulsome video demo of the new features of that, because that's going to be pretty big. The, there's, there's something in there. Could they do sort of auto-mapping, reverse auto-mapping, so that the software actually works out what hardware you're using and maps itself to that, which sounds kind of cool. Um, but everybody else I, I have dealings with, uh, they've either already released their stuff for the year or they're saving it to the NAM show. Focusrite are going to be showing their Sapphire Pro 26 IO, which I don't think they've seen. We've seen kind of operationally anywhere. Um, who else? So I've got a list here because I, 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 I sort of went through the exhibitor list and sort of said, oh, go and see them and see if they've got anything. Uh, Apogee, their new Symphony PCI card, which isn't really new, but it's shipping. Uh... Cycling 74 are going to be um, announcing some things. They've, they're also got a stand with the guys who make Lima, uh, Jazz Mutant. And mm. apparently they're going to be showing some more applications of their control surface. I'm really hoping we can get a demo of that. Apparently with Logic is really rocking. So we're going to try and get that. Um, let me see. Who else have we got? I love that Lima. Now that, that really is something new. We were asking for something new yeah, earlier, but that, that Lima is just amazing. Cycling 74 are a company that could possibly come up with something new. They're the sort of people that we need We need something from, are they? Uh, apparently SSL are going to have some new stuff in the Duende front, are they? I mean, or that's what they told me. Maybe they just said that, make sure I made an appointment. There is some new stuff from them, but they wouldn't tell me what it is. So you, you will have to make an appointment. Well, we have got an appointment. It's Excellent. at 3.30 on the Saturday. 3.30 on Saturday, so hopefully by Sunday... We should have some video for you. We're also going to get a fulsome demo of the Cubase 4 new features. I think that's about it, really. Um, that we'll probably pick up some more stuff, but I, I don't think anybody's kind of got any inkling of what might be coming. But uh... no, that's right. I heard um, Duran Duran were doing some gigs in their Second Life personas. Apparently they are, yes. <laughs> I've just been making psychedelic flowers and surreal paintings with Nick. Um, his, his whole... Um... I mean, his island is going to have more sound than than a lot of the places that are in Second Life at the moment. Because most of the time, you go into the Second Life room or a club or a space, whatever, and nothing there really makes a sound other than maybe some streaming music or if the streaming video, maybe that's got sound. But every object in Nick's virtual world has a sound. So if you walk towards a flower, if you touch it, it makes a noise. Ah, uh, well, I've not I've not experienced Second Life because I've got. I haven't got enough time in this one, so maybe I need a parallel existence to sort of get everything done in. <laughs> the Gabriel video, did you anyone see that? Oh, the Gabriel video is great. What it is, it's, uh, it's a French documentary uh, that was filmed in, I think, was it 1981 or 82? I believe uh, so. And it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a, a film of this boyish Peter Gabriel making music before he was famous, although he, I think he was at that point already obviously famous because of the Genesis stuff, but he only seems about 16 and he's sampling stuff at a rubbish dump and smashing television screens and sampling the, the noise through his fairlight and, uh, and, and doing stuff through tubes and blowing bits and pieces like that down some tubes. And it's, it's quite fascinating. Uh, it is. Well, he's, it's a kind of his philosophy and sound design for the yeah. next record, isn't it? But he, he, makes some, he makes some sort of predictions there. He sort of talks about uh, a new age of electronic skiffle music as gear gets cheaper and and then starts talking about third world music becoming a greater influence. And, and it's, it's like a kid making all these predictions. And he was always going on about world music back then, of course. 
But what was really good, it's nice to know that he's, he's basically a spotty geek deep down, because he, he really was it's like a university student. Fairlights were still the prize of a house then. I think the only sampler available at that time was was still was probably S900 or something that was still very expensive. Uh, uh, no, no. But I built my own. Did you? I bought a, a Sinclair ZX Spectrum and I got a whole load of stuff um, from an electronics magazine and built my own sampler probably around the same time if it was Fairlights and S900. It cost about 40 quid to build, I think. Was it a Greengate kit by any chance? No, no, it wasn't. It was AI, Artificial Intelligence, was the man that invented it. And it came on the front of Electronics and Music Maker. Uh, and the software for it came as a cassette, plugged it into the back of the MC202 Roland Micro Composer. And what did you sample? Anything I could. Uh, so you got things, yes. lots, very, of, lots short of very things. short things. I used to use it to sample up to four seconds. So I... So I was probably using it at 4K, which is, but I loved the noise it made. SonicState.com. Um, well, on the subject of videos, um, I, I also found some Dave Smith interviews. Um, no Island Media, Media, who've been making a kind of uh, TV program about Dave Smith, um, decided to put up three 30-minute interviews, which was sort of surplus to the, what they needed. They're sort of so I can't imagine how much stuff they must have filmed to get their um, documentary together. But there's one particular one, uh, episode two, which was a, a really fascinating insight into the sequential circuits years. He, he, it's just Dave Smith, who we've interviewed on a couple of occasions, um, talking about the kind of history and the release releases of sequential. And it's it's really quite interesting if anyone gets a chance to look at it. What uh, what struck me about it, I only, I only saw the first one, is uh, what is it about blokes who make synthesizers? They all seem to be really, really nice. I've, I've, I've interviewed a few. Um, I met Bob Bob. Moog, who was really, really nice, Dave Smith, and a guy called Chris Huggett, who works for Novation. He um, uh, he developed the Oscar originally, and the Nat and the Wasp. Do you remember those? They're sort of oh, um, yeah. plastic-covered, uh, touch-sensitive synths. And he's a really nice bloke as well. So I, I just wonder if, it's, if there's something about creating synths that makes you really nice and mellow. I think Dave Smith is another man who may invent something incredibly clever and incredibly new, which would make me stand back and go, wow, that's really different. And you know, This current crop of synths are really good. I, I tried nicking one from Future Music when I left, um, but uh, they, he wanted it back, unfortunately. But is it the Poly Evolver? Was that the one? Yeah. yeah. They're, they're that was great. really good. I think we've had various different ones come through the studio for Nick to try out. So, yes, I have. Yeah, no, I like. I reviewed the Mono Evolver. I enjoyed that. I think he was a bit disappointed that I didn't want to buy it, um, but it wasn't actually that I didn't want to. It's just that that I couldn't afford to buy it. it depends how much you needed one at the time, I suppose. I didn't really need one, to be honest. I didn't need one. That's I mean, my true. My girlfriend keeps saying to me, "Mark, you need a room in the house to do music on," and I keep saying to her, "No, really, I don't. But I do all my music sitting on a stool in the kitchen on my laptop." using logic at home i don't use anything else at all oh really well you might you might be interested in the apple update logic story then i might not oh okay (laughs) no go on i mean if it involves trying to reauthorize anything then i absolutely refuse to do it from a musician's point of view actually having to sit down and with limited time to make music to actually sit down and have to authorize all these plugins i just refuse to do it anymore and I use Logic because it's all built in, and I don't have to put anything else into it. 
I think at one point I put an airport card in my computer and it decided its hardware profile was different and it deauthorized everything. These copy authorization response generation code things re re rely on the hardware and the computer serial number and a whole load of other things to generate those codes and they just disable themselves. I know that logic, work, logic works on my computer. I've got version 7.01 on there, I think, and it asks me to update it, and then I had to pay for the next upgrade, and I thought, well, it's working for me. It's doing what I want it to do. I think the one that the, from 7.01 onwards, isn't that the, the Mac Intel update anyway? Yeah. So if you haven't got, you haven't got a, a Mac Intel computer, it's not worth doing anyway. Well, Nick. I have to say, um, 7. Point, uh, I think the upgrade from 7.1 point something put uh, automatic delay compensation in, uh, which may be something that you're interested in. So if you put things across buses or whatever, plugins. But anyway, the latest Apple update, um, apparently, the, the you know, they re just before they announced the Mac Pros, they released these super giant quad-core G5s, which everybody yeah. was kind of going, oh, that sounds great, and really excited about. Well, apparently, Logic never really took advantage of the uh, quad-core um, all the future, all the upgrades between between then and now have been just sort of things that help it with Intel-based uh, processors. But this latest upgrade uh, fixes the um, the issue with the G5s, where it can opt it can use all the, the multi cores properly. So I think perhaps uh, quad G5 users will be able to get full power from their machines if they get this upgrade. So that's probably a good thing because if I just dropped whatever it is, what three grand on the on the top of the range G5, I'd probably want Logic to work properly if it, that's why I bought it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, guys, uh, it's been a great pleasure. <laughs> Thanks very much for joining us this week. Uh, Andy Jones. Well, thank you very much. And Mark Tinley. My pleasure. Okay, and remember, you can contact us if you've got anything to add to any of the stuff we've been talking about this week or any on previous issues, and you'd like to leave a comment or say hi or just tell us if you enjoy or dislike or anything about the podcast, um, please call us on the Skype handle Sonic Talk, or you can just leave an answer phone message. We've got a US phone number, which is 312-376-8089. Uh, just pop a message on the answer phone, and uh, we may use it in the future show. Or if you're outside the US, 001-312-376-8089. Uh, or if you want to email us, uh, email us at sonictalk at sonicstate.com. Thanks for listening. Sonic Sonic State. State.